Welcome to the show. I'm Beth Hayward, and this is Souls and Souls, a podcast for the spiritual but not religious and the religiously spiritual. I am so excited to share today's conversation with you. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Take a listen. My guest today is Jonathan Foster. He's a writer, a podcaster, a lover of mountains and football, a topic we're not going to discuss because I don't want to show my ignorance here. (laughs) Um, He has a new book entitled Theology of Consent. A little later on, I'll have him explain the subtitle, which I'm going to hold back on. And it's a culmination of three years, uh, at least maybe a lifetime of research and writing, and no doubt, a whole lot of hard work. Um, He's recently uh, earned his doctoral degree, and so congratulations on that. Very good to have you you. here today, Jonathan. Well, thank you. Very, very glad to be here. Appreciate you having me on. And uh, yeah, it should be fun, and it's okay. We don't have to talk about football. Yeah, thanks. I noticed you kind of use some football metaphors sometimes, and I'm just like, uh... Yeah, hopefully not too much. Well, I'm sure we can just translate it into hockey or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Good Canadian sport. So let me just start. um, On your website, you say that your theology is pretty much just breathe and give people hugs. Uh, Tell me more about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. It's It's the simplicity after working through years of complexity, you get to the other side. So, um, yeah, I just noticed that most having worked, probably you can relate to this or maybe you can't. I don't know. But having worked with folks my whole life and also worked with the voices inside my own head, I I don't think we have done ourselves um, a lot of favors in terms of giving grace to ourselves and creating space and grace to just be and to be human beings. There's just so much pressure that comes with sometimes with being a Christian and trying to measure up and expectations, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I just love the continual step into freedom that I've been able to to take and receive over the last several years of, yeah, it's pretty, when it all comes down to it, I think love just wants to be with us, just like I would want to be with my kids, give them some hugs and, uh, and give them space to, to do whatever they want to do. I, I want to pick up on that word freedom. Um, mm-hmm. The American context is, is not all that different than the Canadian, but it's certainly a word here that's been used, I think, co-opted mm. in a way um, that feels like um, my freedom is, is paramount um, and the only way I can achieve it is to just ignore or squash your freedoms. Uh, you found a different, um, you're reclaiming freedom as a word of liberation, if you will. That is a great question. What I've had to do, you could probably relate, maybe your listeners can, what I've had to do is rehabilitate so many words in my uh, theological lexicon such that, you know, when I say those words now, I, I feel, my body feels different, my brain goes a different direction than it used to. Freedom is probably one of those things now that you say that, that maybe I've even done unintentionally because you're right, um, the Western context has just loaded it up with all these extra things. Um, and which is ironic, isn't it? A word like freedom gets weighed down with a bunch of stuff that makes it not so free. 
So I kind of think still that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I think that's true. And wherever there's freedom, there's a Spirit of the Lord. And it is actually a free thing. It's actually something that cares about your agency and autonomy and consent. And it's a really, really beautiful word. But yeah, it needs to be rehabilitated. So like, why do you care so much about God? Like, I mean, I'm, you know, <laughs> I work for the institutional church um, to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I move in a lot of circles where people say, you know, it's just the word is just holding us back. Um, and I guess maybe mm-hmm. I'm not asking about the word just yet, but more, it feels like your whole life is engaged in uh, redefining God. Like, so I, is there some personal history there? Like there's gotta be uh, a little bit of a story that's led you to, to this vocational path without giving your whole life story. Why does God matter? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I have been a pastor Mm. over the years. I've been a church planter. So it certainly has been a part of my, the responsibility, at least might be the way Mm. I say it of helping people, you know, get a, a healthier sense of what the divine might mm-hmm. be, uh, which is about the best we can do, I think. I'm not sure any of us exactly knows. So I've taken that really seriously. Um, and even though I'm not currently a pastor, I find myself still, you know, interacting in all those same circles and still being around a lot of young people. Of course, you know, the older I get, the mm-hmm. more there seems to be more young people. Um, my The real story, without without trying to suck the air out of the room, um, the real story for me really kicked into gear. New Year's Day of 2015, our oldest daughter was killed in a car wreck. And it um, it just invited me to reconsider, well, pretty much everything. Mm. And I was pastoring at the time. And I, you know, I took it really seriously of trying to figure out how to grieve, how to be intellectually honest with my questions, and to reflect that to the people t- for my you know, for our uh, our two boys, for nieces and nephews, for young people in our church, and for myself, and that and that took me, <laughs> it took me down paths I had no idea what were going to happen, but um, but yeah, that's all mm-hmm. a part of it. So it it really means a lot to me to try to wrestle with this concept of, you know, what is the divine and and how does he or she relate to us? It, those are super important questions. Well, and of course those are the moments when we ask you know when the theory gets challenged and we try to figure out practically what do i believe wow yeah yeah, yeah no yeah, easy yeah. no better way certainly the hardest way but uh, the most effective way to understand how the world works is to go through the valley of the shadow of death if you will yeah yeah we i basically felt like sometimes the phrase um I don't know if it's a Canadian phrase, but all bets mm-hmm. are off. Like when that happened, all bets were off. Like it didn't really matter what my denominational mm-hmm. allegiance was or even honestly what my religious spiritual, it didn't, none of it really mattered because um, I think sometimes, you know, we all, and myself included, you're hesitant to rethink some things in part because of fear of what you might have to give up. But after we, you know, we had to, we had to give up the mm-hmm. most intense thing. And so at that point, it was like, well, well, what else? What else are you going to do? I mean, are you going to kick me out of the church? Because I I mean, it's not even going to, in comparison, it does hurt, because by the way, I did get kicked out of the denomination. But, um, 
but in comparison, it's nothing. Mm. You know, it, it's a it's a drop in the bucket. So yeah, all bets were off. In and in that respect, I'm really thankful for that, and it's been a really meaningful almost eight wow. years. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, that's that's hard yeah. stuff, and and that's. Um, the stuff that um, I think really allows those who um, hear what you're saying and are compelled to listen to it to actually say, oh, <laughs> it's from his heart, mm-hmm. uh, not just his head. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so I've heard you describe God as the most powerful agent in the universe. And I want to pick up on that word agent because, for example, I you know, I've had this, I've had this beautiful atheist coming to my church for years now and (laughs) but I keep using the word God and he keeps using other words and it's like there's this divide and I wonder if if part of in that language um reclaiming are we so stuck on God as the guy in the sky like how does God the agent hold enough power for people um thoughts on that stuff? Mm. It's a small question. Yeah, really. Well, all your questions have been small so far. Uh, yeah, how to, what is the name we give to that thing that seems to be entangled and embedded and infused and into the DNA of everything that's going on in life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's time, that's fully, that's full of time, you know, um, that's eternal. Yeah. What is the best way to describe that? I don't know. I think that's a part of probably what we both do. We try to wrestle with, you know, different words and concepts. And, you know, part of the problem is meanings of words change and contexts change and, you know, culture changes. So you're, you're constantly feeling like you're, 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 you're playing with this thing. But some of that I think is really beautiful because if I could actually name mm-hmm. it, then I could potentially pin it down and control it. And it would then not, wouldn't have anything to do with love, which I think is the most interesting way to approach this mm-hmm. thing, this agent. Well, and is it, yeah, the pin it down, right? I mean, it seems like the, mm. um, the great tension of our lives is that uh, continual quest for meaning and uh, understanding mm-hmm. and yeah, we want to pin it down. And yet when we pin it down, then we find ourselves just pinned down too, right? Boxed in. There you go. That's that's the whole thing. We, we, we work to try to control it and then we realize something's controlling us. And then, and then a little bit later you realize, well, if I really think that God is love, I actually think love is uncontrolling. I've never, I've never been in a relationship where I liked it when people controlled. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why I would think that would be something I would want out of my God. So you're, yeah, you're, you're absolutely so, right. So you've entitled your book, the, not the, but simply Theology of Consent. Um, That's right, that's right. And then we'll get into the subtitle in a minute, but, but this feels like what you're touching on here, Theology of Consent, and there's something tied up in there about the nature of the divine as love. Consent, that's a loaded word too. Um, Tell us more about it. Yeah, it's a big word. Well, you're right. Uh, thank you for catching. You you may have read the... Uh, I might have read the book. The little... Yeah, you may have read the preface. Um, I, I make sure to note that I discovered that um, Simone Weil, who was that French intellectual 
Um, I don't know why so many of the people that I like were French intellectuals, but anyhow, who she she had an essay entitled "The Theology of Consent." So, mine is not the one and only. You know, if you want the, you should probably read hers. <laughs> Mine's just theology of consent, and yeah, that word it turns out means has just the importance and the meaning of that word and that concept of consent and consensual. It just week after week, month after month, year after year, it seems to grow in my life. And I keep being reminded or someone telling me, you know, something, just keep over and over my head realizing the power of, um, of the consent of love. So I think that God is love, and I think the fundamental, fundamental characteristic of love is that it is consensual. So I don't think God forces or controls, um, and, but... But also, he's, she's still the most powerful agent in the cosmos. So it's this really st- strange juxtaposition of things. And so, so consent, I'm rambling a little bit, but I will say that um, I was really arrested. I'm sure as I'm not the only one who has been, but I was arrested one day when I was co- contemplating uh, Mother Mary, this small, I assume she was small, teenage mother being the fulcrum of so much uh, incredible, you know, there's so much came out of just her decision. And she says, let it be. And I hadn't really ever thought, my, my tradition really didn't ask me to, you know, consider Mary all that much growing up. But I remember thinking one day about how terrible the story would have been if, if, if there was no record of Mary saying, let it be. And so in other words, the idea would be God could just do whatever he wants. I mean, it's, it's abhorrent to think that, that God would move on someone um, in that particular way. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. And then my next thought was I heard this whisper, or maybe I whispered it myself, maybe the whole cosmos, maybe the whole universe revolves around consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, I think that might be true. I'm still trying to figure out, what that means, but I think that might be true. Well, and you are a, um, a subscriber to open and relational theology and to the work of, of Alfred North Whitehead. Uh, so I, of course, I've heard you lift up that idea that um, the world is a series of, of events, of occasions. So it, which of we could of course go on a huge tangent around the materiality of the world as opposed to this idea of uh, moments. So there's consent in there. There's all of our interactions. I mean, it's easy for us to think of human interactions that might be the best way to stay, but you're saying down to the molecular level, animals, all of it. Um, we're in relationships of consent, if you will, even ourselves. Yeah, you just you just said it right. We we live in a relational cosmos. Um, mankind lived a long time trying to, or or thinking that they were separate, you know, from other things that were going on, a substance based reality, you know, if you will. But at least for the last hundred years, since since theory of relativity and quantum mechanics and all that, we we've at least had scientific evidence telling us that no we are so entangled with everything it just you know it just never stops and to the point where and even with the Girardian stuff too uh individuality to the point where we're not even sure where I 
we can't really even say where I begin and you end and vice versa. And so, and that's true with all the creation, you know, it's true down to the molecular level, it's true out into space. But to your point, yes, somehow consent is in the middle of all that because love's in the middle of all that. And so love's constantly in a consensual relationship, um, inviting, I think, yeah, what I think that I think is that God is constantly inviting us, but never forcing us to go a particular way. But then when we, even when we take wrong choices, God will consent to that, mm-hmm. but is so creative and so, uh, I don't want, I, I have a love-hate relationship with the word power, but so powerful, so creative, um, and so patient that she's able to then, you know, recalculate and, okay, let's take the next best thing. Mm. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and as we're recording this, I'm aware, and I suppose people could be listening to us at any time and find a current example, um, but on our news feeds for many weeks have been women and their allies in Iran um, cutting their hair, taking to the streets at great risk to their very lives. Uh, mm-hmm. There's something there. I hadn't thought of it until this moment yeah. as being um, an issue of consent. Uh the idea of not only do we want to have control over what we do with our own bodies, but I think consent is a word that takes some of that adversarial sense away from control. We don't, I don't, I don't want control yeah. so much. I want to have a say. I, I don't want to be told um, who I'm to be and, and how I'm to engage in the world. I think so. I think. Now, I had someone ask me the other day what my definition of healthy theology is, and I, and I realized, really, for me, healthy theology, first of all, caveat, I'm not necessarily a healthy person, so I could be screwing this up. <laughs> but with, with that aside, um, healthy theology is all about consent. It's all about um, you get to decide for yourself. And so, you know, listen, um, cultivate your discernment, Listen to your body, you know, listen to your heart and to your mind and trust yourself and believe in yourself. That doesn't mean, of course, that because we are in a relational cosmos, it doesn't mean that other people uh, shouldn't speak into that or can't speak into that. You're never entirely by yourself, I guess, but you're also never forced to do what the crowd says to do. So I think that's a healthy way to look at it. And I agree that that Iranian thing is a powerful example of of a consent inviting the whole world to rethink mm-hmm. what's been going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And thank God for that. Thank, thank consent for that. Indeed. Indeed. So I've listened to your podcast and I've read some of your writing. You have a beautiful writing style. It's uh, reminiscent for me thank of you. John Caputo. Um, when you when thank you go you. into your poetic uh, <laughs> way of mm-hmm. writing, so I, I urge people mm-hmm. to um, to take a listen uh, to your podcast and, and to read some of your writing because it, you have a beautiful way of taking really big thoughts and um, making them accessible to ordinary folks. So so that's my preamble to, all right, let's delve into the subtitle of your book, because this is the stuff that could make those who are not professional philosophers um, say, oh, okay, maybe I'll walk away from that. 
<laughs> give us give us the whole title of the book and then uh, unpack it a bit for us. Well, thank you for uh, even mentioning my name in the same sentence with John Caputo. <laughs> it's uh, uh, that would be. Um, well, I, I would say I told Catherine Keller, mm-hmm. who I, I view in the same way as mm-hmm. Caputo, I told Kath, Miss, Miss Kath, Dr. Catherine this year that when I grow up, I want to write yeah, like that her. That would be beautiful. <laughs> so, we can all dream. <laughs> so, uh, so same, same mm-hmm. of Caputo. And I will say that um, John Caputo and I are now Facebook friends. Great. See? Yeah, you're, so that's you're a, coming up in the world. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's been yeah. a good year. Uh, okay, so the subtitle to Theology of Consent is Mimetic Theory in an Open and Relational Universe. Yep. And it's not as scary yeah. as it sounds. So, like, um, no, But I no. do have to say, um, I didn't know what mimetic theory was until I read your book. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I know, right? See, that there's smart people yeah. who are pretty ignorant about things. So, um <laughs> Uh, yeah. Tell us about it. I mean, it's uh, you explained it well. Yeah. I think I get it now. But, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so mimetic theory comes from an idea, speaking of French intellectuals, comes from a, a gentleman by the name of René Girard, um, who was a French-American intellectual, actually spent most of his career in America. But um, he outlines this. It's, an, it's really at heart an anthropologic, it's a way to look at anthropology, it's a way to kind of see ourselves and to see how we've created the world. So it's more, it lives in the social sciences, but a little bit of uh, psychological too, because mm-hmm. it's built upon desire. In the same way, speaking of philosophers, that maybe Hegel or Freud or Jacques mm-hmm. Lacan talk about desire, Girard takes it. And, and kind of builds it out and gives us a really, I think, insightful, intelligent way to see ourselves and, and to read ourselves. Mm. And we could, I could, I could give you the elevator pitch. Yeah, sure. Quick, I, I, I'm always a, a fan of elevator pitches, uh, the, the hardest thing <laughs> in the world to write, but once you've got it. <laughs> right, it right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and as long as it's not a, as long as we're talking about several floors, I can give you Sounds the elevator good. pitch. If it's just... Yeah, if it's just one floor, I, I can't do that. High rise elevator pitch. Or, or a really slow <laughs> elevator, either way. Uh, yeah, it's basically, you know, depending on how you divide it up, and it's not particularly linear, but, you know, we could talk about it in that way to try to uh, get our handle, get a handle on it. So I usually talk about it in four or five ways, and I'll just say those things and we can unpack them. But it has to do with desire. That leads to imitation. That for Girard inevitably leads to conflict which then leads to his most well-known piece of the theory, which is scapegoating. And then the last piece is ritualization. Mm-hmm. So the idea is um, we, you know, none of us live in a vacuum. Uh, this is an interconnected universe context. And so I don't really know what I want until I see what you want. And you don't really know what you want until you see what I want. And then we both start to go for that, you know, for that mm-hmm. thing. And, um, and I should say all of this, it's really important to note that all of this plays out against the background of an intense awareness that us humans have of our own insecurities, of our own shortcomings, um, of that own feeling of, to, to borrow from philosophy, that feeling of lack, like, I, like I'm not a complete subject. And so I see what you have and I'm like, oh, well, Beth seems to be put together and I 
I desire that. She must be a non-lacking subject. <laughs> we don't we don't obviously say those no. words, but that that's how we act. And and this is obvious in a lot of different ways. But I mean, our the entire marketing industry is is built on mimetic yeah. desire. Yeah. So that's... they they will yeah they'll never show you the beer that you want to drink. They'll show you the beer that your model yeah. wants to drink, yeah. and then that. That, uh, and you're hooked. You going. <laughs> and you're hooked. You're hooked. If you yeah, like beer. Enough, yeah. I don't know anything about beer, but that's just what no, it's better than football. So, so thank you. <laughs> exactly. I'm trying to stay away from the football. Um, so we have desire that leads to this imitation piece. Uh, you know, we're leaving a few things out, but basically just to keep it moving this, the imitation that, so we we're both going for the same mm-hmm. thing whether it's the beer or the car or the diploma or the guy or the girl or the position of power, whatever it is. And so as we do this, this there's this back and forth uh, reciprocation. Uh, Chris Fleming calls it the symmetry of antagonism starts to build. We start to act like each other. It's our sameness that drives uh, our competition and our comparison. It's It's not our differences, which I still to this day have to remind myself when I'm having trouble with someone, I more often than not, I recognize, oh, this is not because I'm different <laughs> than this person. It's because I'm, I want the same things they yeah, want. Yeah. I hate that life lesson. I, 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 know. Just... <laughs> I know. I know it's, it's mm. so true. So desire imitation that leads to conflict. Um, so conflict grows and grows and grows. And then for Gerard at the edge of conflict, he uncovered this ingenious thing that humanity's figured out how how to deal with our conflict. Well, first of all, it should be said, sometimes we go over the precipice and we go into full on war. But more often than not, what we do to process our insecurity, to process our antagonism and our violence, our, our, you know, our intense awareness of our own lack is you and I agree uh, subconsciously, invisibly, somehow we agree to turn and point our finger at someone else. And then we, I think offload is a great word. We offload all of our psycho-spiritual drama onto the back of someone else. Mm-hmm. And so you and I, it's always built on two lies. It's, it's built on the lie that you and I are uh, innocent, like we don't have any problems, and that the other person is guilty. Mm-hmm. And once we see them guilty, it justifies all of our scapegoating ways. It's beautiful, you know, it's, it's, it's terribly sinister, but it's, it works mm-hmm. beautifully because it kind of works uh, for at least a season <laughs> until the conflict builds back up again. And then the fifth piece is the ritualization of this, which also takes us down a lot of really interesting uh, paths. So that's that's kind of the idea there. And then you, uh, that's beautiful. Well done, elevator speech. Um, and, and you're Thank probably you. thinking to yourself, well, there's 10,000 more things I need to say. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And then you bring into this open and relational theology, um, which is about uh, God being only love, about each moment um, presenting the next best possibility for us to lean into. Um, w- why bring in uh, this particular theological lens uh, to this uh, anthropological theory? What's it add to that's it? A really yeah. Good, yeah, that's a really good question. Well, really, initially, the reason was because I had benefited so much from a theory. And then it opened up new worlds for me. 
And then I was introduced to open relational theology and I was benefiting so much from that. So it was really just curiosity uh, when um, Tom Ord and I, who's, um, you know, who was my mentor and who I did the, the doctoral dissertation with when we first met, it just be, it became really clear right up front, like, oh, first of all, no one is, as far as we mm-hmm. knew and know, uh, no one had really formally brought these two things together. So we were like, yeah, what would happen if we took mimetic theory, open relational theology, brought it together? And um, so, yeah, the, so, the, so to answer the question, it's because both of them were so meaningful for me. I suspected that there were some common mm-hmm. denominators and so I just kind of tried to follow that trail. Mm, beautiful. Well, I know we could, yeah, we could go on in this. <laughs> let's um, let's bring it down to earth a little bit as best we can. Okay. Um, I'm going to, sure. I don't usually read quotes, but I want to read this quote from, from your book that's just coming out in October. Um, in the same way that children removed from loving environments might grow into underdeveloped adults, so communities removed from a loving origin story might form underdeveloped cultures. What do you think uh, is wrong with the stories we're telling in our culture this day? <laughs> well, I think, I think the predominant religious origin story in the West mm-hmm. has, been, has been a story of separateness, has been a story of this idea, and, and, and by the way, the people who thought of these stories and propagate these stories are, are probably well-intentioned. I, I don't think that they necessarily mean, mm-hmm. mean it to be unhealthy. Yes. Um, I think, unfortunately, they're just driven by their lack, that they have no other way to explain this. They can't imagine that, that just being a human means that you have lack and that God could be happy with that. Yeah. And so somehow that's a way of saying we, we fabricated this origin story that has God separate. So God comes in from a separate space and time, you know, a separate, whole separate sequence of things and, um, you know, orders the world, fixes the world, does whatever. And of course, you know, as the story goes, Adam and Eve screwed up, by the way, in a very mimetic way, because <laughs> e, e, Eve is aware of. The serpent like whispers to Eve that God has it all together, basically, and and so she feels her lack. She wants what God has. She overreaches, and then Adam does what she does, yeah. you know. And then they both they don't admit their culpability. Sorry, I got oh, off no, on the tangent that's great. there. <laughs> but anyhow, as the story goes: we screwed it up, and God, you know, was mad at us or turned his back. Which of course slots Jesus into the savior of the whole thing, and basically Jesus becomes the reason why God can now even hang out with us. Well, anyhow, the whole thing could just be remedied, helped, probably not fixed. I'm not sure that that's the right word, but could be remedied if we just never imagined God was separate in the first place. So our origin story is of presence. Is God consenting to be with us? God's perfection is His willingness in his desire to live with our imperfection. And that's our origin story. And anything else gets us going in the wrong direction. So do you think there's any hope um, for, I mean, let's talk Christian religion, because that's what you know at, at this stage. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think we're so um, embedded, not just in that um, religious story, but the cultural story as well about our separateness? Um, 
And I know you can't speak for all religion. I know there's, you know, but speak in generalities to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll bet I speak for yeah. myself. And I will, I, I will do my best to uh, quote um, uh, Cornell mm. West, who quotes Desmond Tutu, who quotes the prophet Zechariah, mm. who says, I'm a prisoner of hope. Yeah. So I'm neither a pessimist nor an optimist. I'm a prisoner of hope. Uh, and I think I think of that often. I think that that's kind of where us Jesus followers, I think that's where we are. We, and, and hope is not a thing like, mm. it's not an optimistic feeling kind of a thing. Though whenever I'm feeling optimistic, I try to enjoy it as much as I can. Indeed. It, it's a... It's a way of life. You know, I bring hope into the situation. I have to. I have to bring it. And so, um, yeah, on some days, no. I think, I don't think there's hope. I think we're going to blow the world up. Uh, and I think that religious, um, political, religious, spiritual, institutionalized um, stuff will be at the heart of all of it. But then at other days, when I'm more patient and I'm, hanging out with cool people like you I'm like oh no wait we, we, we're gonna do this we, we're, we're gonna do this because we have to do this so but I do think it's gonna take a lot of a lot of work mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and I suspect like me you have that sense of um what can I do but the work like what other choice is yeah. there but to where else where else are we gonna go yeah, yeah. what are we gonna do yeah I want to just come full circle without putting you on the spot, but come back to the tragic loss of your daughter, because, mm -hmm. you know, I've met, I've in my vocation, sadly, I've met many people like you, many parents who have endured uh, such tragedy. And you are some of the, for the most part, the strongest people I know, and yet the most mm -hmm. broken people, like it's, you're, it's mm -hmm. like you're broken forever. Mm -hmm. And yet, the wisdom you've come to born of uh, the breaking of your own heart, I think is, it's just a real gift to the world. So I, if there's any word you can say, I, you know, as I said before, you, you've come up with some beautiful theories, um, but really it was your broken heart in, in some ways that brought this to you. How have you practically speaking, walked through these years of your life what what has sustained you um on the very real journey of of life and I, that might be a little too much to ask but i if we can get to some of that practical stuff of how do you get yeah. up in the morning and who and yeah. what has buoyed you in that <clears throat> well i think there are some answers that um that probably wouldn't be surprising, yeah. you know, certain relation, certain relationships have been incredibly mm -hmm. important. Um, I mean, having said that, though, I know for some folks, certain relationships are also the thing that make it, you know, super hard yeah. to go on. So I've had some of that, too. But, you know, my wife and I together, my partner and I together have, you know, fought through this. And that's been super helpful. My boys just being with them and trying to trying to grieve this thing honestly. You know, I love, we loved our daughter with all of our hearts in our, in, as she lived. And so I've wanted to grieve her with all of my heart right. and her death. And like, there's been some, something about all that that was really like an honorable 
thing to do, like a ridiculous, absurd mm-hmm. thing, uh, but something really honorable to do for the boys. And I think, um, and, and they've done similar mm-hmm. things too. So we've all benefited from that. Probably for me, you know, the reason I'm hesitating a little bit on this is first of all, I, I want to try to summarize it, which yes. is hard. But secondly, you use the word practical. And I don't know how, I don't know how practical love is. Uh, love is not a very practical thing. Yeah. And, and love has been the thing for me. And, as, and in this intense awareness of, it's so funny. Like, even after all this, I, I don't even know how to articulate mm-hmm. it very well, which I think is part of what keeps you going. Um, this intense awareness that beauty and pain are not mutually exclusive. Like they are, they're symbiotic. They're one and the same thing. And so, yeah, this, this, this intense awareness that, that God was with us and was with our daughter when she died, but that God didn't, and God didn't stop it. And now I'm inclined to say, I don't think God could have stopped it single-handedly at least. But somehow that there's like this deep beauty in the middle of all of that. And I've been trying to, I've been trying to uh, excavate that beauty this whole time. Like the beauty piece of it is what uh, constantly gets me up mm-hmm. and also invites me to stare at the ceiling while I'm trying to go to sleep yeah. at night too. And it's this awareness of pain and joy all wrapped up together. And that's really interesting to me. Well, and that pain and joy and the joy, you know, the beauty and the tragedy all tied in together. It speaks to what you spoke of earlier of um, we can't package it all up. We can't arrive at a place of um, pinning down um, without really um, stopping life. So so I'm just hearing pretty authentically that... um, it's it's almost like we are called in in all of life and it's brought to the fore in in the difficult times um to be people who walk through it and it's just be Mm -hmm. aware just be aware Mm -hmm. of all that's happening rather than trying to sort it all out right and also to uh, hold it loosely mm. in the midst in the midst of a religious system that doesn't generally want you to do that. Especially if you're a pastor, um, they'll they'll give you they'll give you grace for a little while, but after a couple of years, they really kind of need you to land on some stuff. And I don't even really blame them necessarily, but it's just another piece of evidence of how our religious systems are structured around the opposite of what you're saying. They're structured around certainty and confidence. And that, you know, that God is a rock. And I do think God is a rock, but it's now it's more like a rock that smashes all my ideas of what I thought God was rather than a rock that I build upon and never, you know, never have to renegotiate or reconsider anything. And and you're right. There's great, like what, art art in the middle of all that. That's helped me a lot because I, I recognize I value artistry and to live to live a beautiful life, like that's the, that's the most honorable art. And so a lot of days it's been that it's like, 
Well, I started to say I, I haven't said that phrase, but I actually have mm. at times thought, oh, what's the most artful way? If we are, don't you love that verse? Um, is it Ephesians 2.10? We're, we're God's mm. handiwork. We're God's uh, poema is the Greek word from which we get the English word poem. So we're all, uh, it's like God's creating this beautiful art and we're a part of it. So how do I get to be a part of the poem today? Uh, yeah, that's uh, what for whatever reason for me, like that's really that's really helpful. I want to be a part of that. I think that's a beautiful invitation to leave with people. Um, and nice. and I hope that our listeners um, can hear a bit of the the grace and see the light in that invitation to be part of part of the artistry, uh, part of the poem. Thank mm-hmm. you, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for having me. So I I'll let it. folks know that uh, your website is jonathanfosteronline.com um, and your That's podcast right. very smartly um, is named after you, Jonathan underscore Foster. <laughs> um, so really do yeah. urge people to go over there. It's a really great way to um, to be exposed to the uh, certainly your current season it, it exposes one to some of the topics from um, your most recent book and probably your previous one um and uh and yeah to look for look for that book when it comes out in october um thank you so much for showing up with your whole heart thank you very much for having me i appreciate it i'm beth hayward and you've been listening to souls and souls thank you so much for joining us today If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and maybe consider sharing this episode with a friend. I hope that something in our conversation stirred your soul today. Until next time.